0: They're looking pretty cool, so uh, if you got any thoughts, write them down, put them in the uh, offering box, or send an email in, and I will definitely take it into consideration. So, we are in Revelation chapter 17, the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns. This is the kind of stuff that makes the book of Revelation interesting to people, so let's dive in. Last week, just by way of reminder, we saw this woman riding a beast... And we took the whole lesson to talk about the woman. Well, this lesson's all about the beast. So I do want to remind you that the woman, though, she represents... She's not really a woman. It's a, it's a metaphor. She represents an evil city or an evil world empire. She's very wealthy. She's very evil. And she's very influential. That's what we learned about her. And she spreads her corruption filth over the entire world. So that's the woman. Now we get to look at the beast. Revelation chapter 17, verse 3. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which is full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Okay, so we'll look at a description, and then we'll try to understand what the description means. The first thing we learn about... Uh, the beast, and we talked about this a little bit last week, is that it's being ridden by a woman. A woman is riding the beast. Well, what's that mean? If a woman is riding the beast, it means she's in charge of the beast. When you ride a horse, you're in charge of the horse. You tell it where to go, you're the master. It's subject to you. So as vicious and evil and powerful as this beast is, it has a master. And it's that filthy woman that we talked about last week. Revelation 17, 18 says this about the woman. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. So the beast, which you're going to see in just a moment, it's an evil empire, is being controlled by another evil empire. First thing about the beast, it's being controlled by a woman. That is, that great city, evil city. The second thing about the beast is that it's full of names of blasphemy. It says, sitting on a scarlet beast... which was full of names of blasphemy. Blasphemy is a word that we hear... but I bet you if I asked you all for a definition of it... you'd have a hard time coming up with one. So I gave it a lot of thought... and I looked up some some, um, dictionaries and stuff... to try to come up with a real simple definition that would work. And I think the best one I came up with is... blasphemy means saying something against God. So if you say something against God, that's blasphemy. It could be of any nature. This beast is full of blasphemy. This beast hates God. This beast hates everything that God stands for. This beast in Revelation chapter 17 is mentioned in Daniel 7. It's mentioned in Daniel 13. It gets, in fact... um, part of this story takes up 10% of the book of Revelation. I mean, it's extremely important. So we're going to go back to Daniel, see where it's introduced. We'll look at Revelation chapter 13, and then we'll continue with 17, where we are now. So Daniel had this vision, and this is what it says in Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, and it's about the Antichrist. He shall speak great words against the Most High. What do you call it when you speak against God? Blasphemy. So when it says that this being in Daniel 7 is going to speak great words against the Most High, he's going to be blasphemous. Then it goes on to say this about the Antichrist. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High and think to change times and laws. And they shall be given into his hand, that is the saints, the believers, until a time and times and dividing of times so this blaspheming Antichrist is going to take on all this authority he's going to try to change laws and and biblical events seasons and times and he's going to have control over persecuting believers for time times and dividing of times which as I've taught you in the past is 42 months three and a half years so that's a, a little taste from Daniel we jump to Revelation chapter 13... ...and it kind of expands what Daniel said. Verse 5. The beast was given a mouth... ...to utter proud words and blasphemies... ...and to exercise his authority... ...for 42 months. Just like Daniel said... ...John is referencing Daniel. And then in the next verse it says... ...he opened his mouth to blaspheme God... ...and to slander his name... ...and his dwelling place... ...and those who live in heaven. He was given power... ...to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language and nation. So this beast hates God. This beast hates God's people. This beast is going to persecute God's people for 42 months. And this beast is going to rule the world for at least 42 months. So, what exactly is the beast? We looked at the beast just briefly in chapter 13. And I told you we'd be looking at it in more detail when we hit this chapter. But to remind you what I already taught you back in chapter 13, the beast refers to an evil end-time alliance. And it also refers to its ruler, the Antichrist. So when you're reading through the book of Revelation and you see the word the beast, you've got to stop. And ask yourself, which beast is it talking about? Is it talking about the Antichrist? He's called a beast in the book of Revelation. His prophet is also a beast in the book of Revelation. And his empire with the seven heads and the ten horns is also a beast in the book of Revelation. People think as soon as they hear the word beast, they think the Antichrist, but that's not true. It's also his kingdom. All right. So far, here's what we've got. The first thing we learned about the beast is that a woman rides it. The second thing we learned about the beast is that it's full of the names of blasphemy. And the third thing we learned about this beast is that it has seven heads. We understand what it means that a woman rides it. It's being controlled by another empire, at least for a while. It's full of names of blasphemy. It hates God and speaks against God. What's with the seven heads? Thankfully, we don't have to try to figure it out. The Bible just plainly tells us what the seven heads represent in verses 9 and 10. Here's what it says. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. All right, seven geographical area and their rulers. There's seven kingdoms that comprise the beast. This beast is a federation of at least Seven empires from seven different geographical locations. Seven mountains upon which the woman sits... ...there are also seven kings. But there's more to it than that. Because the fourth thing says the beast has ten horns. And the ten horns are explained two verses later. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings... ...who have received no kingdom as yet... ...but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast... All right, it says they receive authority with the beast for one hour. One hour doesn't mean an hour, it just means a short amount of time. We have language like that today "Um, I'll be there in just a minute. We don't really mean 60 seconds, I'll be there. What we mean is I'll be there shortly. Shortly could be 30 seconds, it could be three or four minutes, it could be five minutes. We just mean I'll be there in just a minute. Or something like, just a sec. Well, we don't really mean just a sec. Because you can imagine how that conversation would go. Just a sec. Okay, time's up. Okay, just a sec. Okay, time's up. It's an expression. Spanish has it, ahora. Which literally means an hour. But it means right now. Soon. Same idea. An hour in the scripture often means just a short amount of time. So these kings... Are going to be put into this authority over the world as part of the beast, and they're only going to rule for a short time. So, devil comes knocking on your door. Have I got a deal for you? You rule with me the entire world for about, I don't know, 42 months, and then spend eternity in hell with me. Deal? Who would want to sign up for that? These guys are nuts. They're they're signing up on the wrong club. 42, they get to rule with the beast for a short time. And then for eternity, no bueno. So this beast having 7 heads and 10 horns, the best way I can figure it up, it's a a confederation of nations. There's a group of 7, joined by a group of 10. So really, you could say it's 17 nations. I suppose it's possible it's seven nations plus ten kings, and some of those ten could be part of the seven, so it wouldn't really be 17 nations. But I know we have at least seven nations and ten more leaders. And that's what the beast is. An evil empire that's going to control the world, murder Christians, and blaspheme against God. How hard is it to imagine such an empire arising in today's day and age? To me, not hard to imagine at all. They are murdering Christians throughout the Middle East right now. Christians have been murdered in the Middle East, in Africa, in Korea, in Russia, in Mexico. We've got a nice little safe bubble here in the United States. But when I look at the world and the last hundred or two hundred years of years where Millions of Christians have been killed throughout the world from communism and Islam. To think of an evil empire taking over the world that kills Christians, we're on the brink of that now. In fact, in our country right now, people are hating Christians. You know, They don't like the fact that we're standing against what they think is good and right. We're saying, no, that's immoral. Killing unborn babies isn't right, it's immoral, it's wrong. They don't like us for that. No, men shouldn't marry men and women shouldn't marry women. That's wrong. It's immoral. They don't like us for that. We're becoming despised. People are speaking against us. They're making fun of us. They're making movies to mock us. You know what's coming next. There are ministers being threatened with jail time and fines right now because they refuse to participate in gay marriage. In this country. It's coming, people. This beast is coming. The Bible is true. So these ten kings have not yet arisen. But I wonder if maybe they exist right now in their, you know, their infancy. I wonder if the United States is part of the beast. I wonder if uh, Iran is part of the beast. Don't know. But to see this kind of prophecy, knowing where we're heading, just lets me know God is in control. He told us way ahead of time what was going to happen. All right, some additional details about this confederacy of seven nations. uh, Verses 9 and 10. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen. Past tense. One is. Contemporary. And the other has not yet come. Future. And when he comes, he must continue... A short time so he might be saying there's only one king to come because he said five have fallen done one is that's when John wrote 2,000 years ago done one is yet to come so there may only be one left of the seven this all might have been history and I say might have because when somebody has a vision you don't really know what they're talking about John's looking to the future So when he says five have fallen, is he saying that from the future's perspective, which means they don't even exist yet and have yet to fall, or is he saying it from his perspective in that time right then, 2,000 years ago? We don't know. So it's possible these guys are history. It's also possible they're just all prophecy. I find it interesting, though. You'll notice he goes to great length to give us very specific and detailed data. There are seven nations. There are seven kings. Five has fallen, one is, one is yet to come, and when he comes, he's going to rule for only a short time. Very detailed. And yet, I have no clue what he's talking about. It's like all this detail, but I think this detail isn't for us. I think it's for the generation that's going to see these events happen. They'll know exactly what's going on. The detail will help them. We might be that generation. We may understand this starting tomorrow. But right now, we scratch our heads and try to figure it out. And that's okay. You know, it said the prophets who prophesied about the coming of Jesus, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, David, they didn't know what they were saying. They wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but they didn't get it. We look back, and we get it just fine. It said the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, Micah chapter 5. He'd be crucified, Psalm 22. He'd die for our sins, Isaiah 53. He'd be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7. Makes perfect sense to us. But when they wrote it down, they were like, I don't get it, God. What's this mean? Daniel said exactly when Jesus would come. He gave a timeline, very more, even more detailed than this. Now, we look back at that timeline, and we can line it up to the coming of Jesus. But Daniel was like, what am I writing? And God said, don't worry about it. It's not for you. So I'm thinking, maybe this isn't for us, and that's okay. Verse 11. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition. Did you catch that? This beast is of the seven and he's also the eighth. Where did the eighth come from? We had seven, we had ten. We didn't have an eighth. If you have seven and you make an eighth, then you don't have seven, you have eight. So why didn't it tell us there was eight? Very confusing to me. But this happens throughout the Bible. There's, a, one of the major, there's three major feasts in the Jewish calendar from the book of Leviticus. By major, I mean Jewish men had to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem three times a year. They had to do it for Passover, which was also a harvest festival, for the festival of week, Shavuot, which was also a harvest festival, And for the festival of tabernacles, Sukkot, which was also a harvest festival. Sukkot is said to be a seven-day holiday. You shall observe it for seven days. And then on the eighth day, you shall do this. Like God. Sometimes it's so easy to understand your word. And sometimes I just don't get it. If it's a seven-day holiday, how come I'm doing something on the eighth day? Shouldn't we call that an eighth-day holiday? But it's a seven-day holiday. We've got seven kings. He's one of the eighth. I don't know. But I do know this. It says, The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven. He's going to perdition. That part I understand. He's going to hell. So this leader, this king, is evil and he's wicked. And he's going to where he belongs, to hell. Now, this seven, five were, five have fallen. The seventh is part of the eighth. Trying to understand what all this means Somehow, the ancient kings or kingdoms of the past are related to this new evil empire. Perhaps this is a revival of that empire, or maybe it shares similar political aspirations or philosophies with an ancient empire. So it's kind of like it's being renewed or reborn. I mean, for all I know, it refers to the resurrection of the Antichrist himself. He was of the seven and now he's the eighth. Because uh, Revelation 13 says this, I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. So a lot of people think this head refers to a a leader, the Antichrist, who's going to die and rise to life again. And maybe that's how he's the seventh and the eighth at the same time when really there's only seven. That makes sense. But just because it makes sense to me doesn't mean it's right. I really don't know. More details about the beast. Chapter 17, verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. So it's more of the same, yet with more detail. He was. It means he's got a history. But not now. But he will again. What's that mean? I don't know. The beast has history, I know that, because it says it was and is not and will come again. A lot of people think it's Rome because the Roman Empire was powerful during the days of Jesus and it ruled the world and it was evil and then it kind of disintegrated. And when they look at the prophecies, they think the Roman Empire is going to come back again. Maybe, but he says the beast that you saw was and is not. When this was written, Rome still was. So I'm thinking maybe it's not Rome. But again, what if he's talking future? I don't know. The beast will come from the pit and go to the pit. That means it's satanically inspired. It's not the devil himself ruling on the throne, but it's the devil's minion. He's possessed by a demon, or the devil himself, and he's ruling. So he's satanically inspired. And so that means when he's done, he's going to go back to the pit. From the bottomless pit and back to the bottomless pit. All right. I want to change gears here for a minute. Because we're going to get into verse 14, which is one of the most astounding passages in all the Bible. But before we get into it, I want to talk to you about pride. Pride. A lot of theologians think that the first sin in history, in existence, was pride. They look at the, the prophets and think that the devil, who was an angel up in heaven, pretty much fell in love with himself, thought he was so beautiful and wonderful, and he thought he could rule the universe better than God and should be given the chance. God cast him out of heaven to help of Michael the archangel. He had Michael do it for him. And now the devil's been spending the rest of eternity trying to become God again. So they say that pride is the first sin. They may be right. But I think pride is definitely the foundational sin for all of us. It's the sin that all other sins are built on. And the reason I want to talk about pride is because this verse 14 introduces the concept without saying so. Let me me show you what I mean. It says, these, these beasts, these will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. Did you see the pride in there? Let me read it to you again. These will make war with the Lamb. The Lamb is Jesus. They're going to declare war against Jesus? How stupid is that? Do they really think they got a chance? He's God. How do you declare war against God? That's just stupid. That's like, talk about the one sure bet you will lose. That's the sure bet. But pride doesn't let them see that. They actually think they can win. True story. I'm living near my house. I'm at the community swimming pool. An old friend from high school shows up. Hey, how's it going? Good. How are you doing? Good. You know, since we've met, I've become a Christian. You know, I follow God now. He says, I'm a Satanist. You're a what? A Satanist? I said, why would you be a Satanist? And you know what he said? He said, because we're going to win. They still believe it. They think they're going to overthrow God and take his kingdom. <laughs> That's just, wow. Overthrow me, no problem. Overthrow the United States, no problem. Overthrow God? Talk about stupid. Talk about pride. These, but how do you make war against God? Can't even see him. He's up in heaven. There's two ways you can make war against God. The first we've already talked about, he'll blaspheme God, speak against God. He'll kind of stir up dissension and rebellion against God amongst God's creatures here on planet Earth. Those who speak against God are making war with God. But even more so, remember I told you he's going to have power over the saints for 42 months? He's going to make war against God's people. So there's this rabbi named Saul who was persecuting the church, even causing some people to be killed. And Jesus came to him and said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So in persecuting his church, Jesus said, you are persecuting me. He takes it personal. So if you're killing his people and making war against them, it's like making war against Jesus. That's one way you can make war against Jesus. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and the laws, and the saints will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. And you can almost understand from human perspective how people could do that. You say, Steve, yeah, I I get the pride thing, but it's not like they're really fighting God. They're kind of fighting people who believe in God. Agreed. They don't get it. I understand that. But you know, Jesus is coming back. Literally, he's coming back. And they're going to try to attack him when he does. They're going to have an army ready to attack him when he comes back. Crazy, crazy, crazy. Jesus is not going to sweat it. You know, uh, they recently had this. How did the ultimate fight go the other night? Did anybody see it? Did Rondi win? Of course she won. I kind of expected her to. Did it last more than 14 seconds this time? 38 seconds. 38 seconds. <laughs> okay, for those of you who don't know, this woman is the toughest woman on the planet. She's a fighter for sport. But, you know, she'll take any of us in a heartbeat. She is awesome. She is the world champ right now for fighting. She's an ultimate fighter. Now, imagine sickening a three-year-old after her. Take her down. Yeah, kid hanging onto your leg. (laughs) You know? She works out with more than that weight. She can do push-ups with that. She can throw that across the room. It's no fight. It's not even a threat. Well, how big is the difference between Jesus and these people who are going to declare war against him? We're going to get into Revelation chapter 19 in a couple weeks, but let me just give you an introduction to it right now. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had name written that no one knew except he himself. This is talking about the return of Jesus. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. In a few weeks, we're going to look at this in detail. But right now, just the big picture. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written... King of kings and Lord of lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people free and slaves, both small and great." And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. You know how it said, out of his mouth goes a sharp two-edged sword? There's not going to be a fight. They're not going to have a chance to win. Jesus is just going to speak the word and end the fight. He's God. He's more than Rondi with a three-year-old. God's just going to say, boom, and they're all going to die right on the spot. Pride. Do you see how wicked pride is? It makes you infinitely stupid. You cannot even see reality through pride. Pride makes you blind or then a bat. But it's worse than just blindness. It makes you incapable of hearing the truth. Pride. Is the most dangerous of all sins. A person in the grips of pride cannot be saved. Let me explain to you what I mean. Steve, it doesn't say pride is the unpardonable sin. I know. But a proud person, how can they believe what the Bible says about them to be true? That they're wretched, broken, horrible sinners. In need of saving. Tell that to a proud person. They're going to say, no I'm not. I'm just fine. You just believe because you're weak. You need a crutch. I'm not so bad. They can't come to the Savior because their pride keeps them from the need of a Savior. A sinner must humbly come to God, confess his sin, seek God's mercy and forgiveness, so a proud person cannot be saved. There's no hope for them. But somehow, and I don't know how, God gets through that stubbornness, that arrogance, that blindness, and whispers into our hearts. And that heart of stone cracks, and a little bit of light shines in. And some of us run from the light. But some of us are like, hey, what's that? You know, Moses, when he saw the burning bush, he had two options. He could have turned and ran because it was freaky, or he could have drawn closer and said, Hey, what's that? He drew closer and God spoke to him. Well, when that light shines through, some people run from it. But others, they look harder and they start to move some of that stone away so they can get a better glimpse. And then God speaks softly to their heart and says, You're broken you need to be saved and they say you know you're right i am broken i've done some bad things i've done some stupid things i can't seem to stop myself doing stupid things even when i try not to i do them and the thoughts in my head at night god they're not good can can you help me and god's like oh i just need you to want to be helped but the proud person says i'm good I'm good. So, just to finish everything up, is it possible, just possible, that pride is keeping you from a full commitment to Jesus right now? It's kind of like a catch-22, because if you say no, then you have to admit, I must be proud. But if you say yes, then you have to follow Jesus, which you don't want to do. So it's like a trap question. But that's okay. I want you to see it for black and white like it is. And if you've not yet given your heart to Jesus 100%, why? What's stopping you? If you'd like to learn more about him, be happy to talk to you any of our pastors, deacons, heck, any of our members... would be happy to talk to you about Jesus. Just let us know. We'll be patient. We'll be kind. No hard sells here. Because it's something you've got to be convinced of, of yourself. In fact, if anything... I'd say, are you sure? Please join me in prayer. Lord, I remember when I was blind... And I was proud, refusing to acknowledge my need of you. But God, I confess, I still wrestle with pride. I know your word says that we should humble ourselves before you. And I pray that you would help us do that. That we might live a gentle, loving life without pride. That we wouldn't consider ourselves better than anyone else. Deserving of any special treatment or any special privilege, we just thank you for loving us, and look forward to our place in the kingdom that you're so graciously giving us, eyes looking up, in anticipation for Jesus' return, for it's in his name we pray, amen. Amen.